The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. You might have heard that it takes about 10,000 hours to become an expert in something. Have you ever heard that before? 10,000 hours of doing something very focused can make you an expert. And that actually comes from some research done by Dr. Anders Ericsson. And he did this in the early 1990s. And he says that it takes a devotion of, follow me on this, 20 hours a week for 50 weeks for 10 years. So 20 hours a week for at least 50 weeks of the year for 10 straight years. And that would make you an expert on something. And obviously that adds up to about 10,000 hours. And I think that if you ask professional athletes, if you ask CEOs of of large companies, um, people who work in the medical field, they would probably not disagree with that. That it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of dedication to become an expert in something like that. I mean, let's be honest, basketball players are not made overnight. It takes day in and day out of dribbling and learning to dribble with your fingertips instead of the palms of your hands and learning to do a mean crossover and going back and forth, dribbling with your left hand and not just your right hand, doing left-handed layups. I remember when I was a kid learning how to play basketball. It was so important to me. My dad can attest to this, but I kept a little notebook and I would go outside and I would shoot shots from different places on the court and I would keep track of them. And one of the goals that I had, I remember as like a 10-year-old, was I want to make 100 free throws was in a row. And you know, my senior year in high school, I finally did it. But I tried from the time I was 10 till the time I was 18 and never was able to do it. I would get a little further, a little further, a little further. And then my senior year, I finally made a hundred free throws in a row. It takes time to become good at something, to gain confidence, to gain understanding in that. The 10,000 hour rule though, is not a hard and fast rule, right? Because some people are a little more advanced than the rest of us. It didn't take them that long to make 100 free throws in a row, right? It didn't take them that long to become a master of something. They were more efficient with their time, so maybe it took a little less than 10,000 hours. Others of us, and we won't name names, are not quite as efficient with our time, right? So it probably takes us 20,000 hours before we would ever become an expert because we don't make the most of our time. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but... The point is that in order to become experts at something, we have to set our hearts and our minds to that task. Would you agree with me at least on that part? I mean, we have to be dedicated dedicated to it beyond just wanting to accomplish something. There has to be a passion and a desire behind that. And that is discipline. That's what we call that. We are disciplined to a task. We've determined what we want to try to accomplish and we've disciplined ourselves to achieve those things. It is very important for us to remember that the gospel calls us out of our former lives into a new life of following after Christ. Now, for those of y'all who may not have been with us, uh, we just finished a study of the book of Romans. Now, just to give an overview of the book of Romans, Paul is talking about our salvation and how great a salvation it is. He talks about it as past tense, present tense, and future tense. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from that practice of sin, and we will be saved from the very presence of sin one day. He talks about it as this progression. So we are justified in Christ. We are in Christ, and therefore his righteousness has been applied to us. There's nothing that we've done to earn it. 
right? We didn't earn God's favor. We didn't earn anything by our own goodness or our own merit. It is a gift from God. But yet when we have been justified and been saved and adopted into his family, it begins a process for us where we begin to focus on this practice of sin that was very common with our old nature, but this new nature, we want to become more like Christ. And so throughout our lifetime, we have this battle of fighting indwelling sin within us. Now, the beauty of justification is it reminds us during our sanctification that these sins that we're fighting, we're not fighting them to be forgiven of them. They've already been forgiven. We're fighting forgiven sins. So the reason we're fighting them is not to gain God's favor. We're fighting them because we want to become more like him because we want to honor him, because we want to involve ourselves in all the benefit that this new life has for us. And so that is what we are talking about. When we become disciplined to our salvation, we are applying all these truths that we studied throughout the book of Romans into our lives so that we gain the greatest benefit we possibly can through our relationship with God, so that we honor him in this great salvation that he's extended to us. And so let me be clear that we do not sanctify ourselves. We don't have the capacity to do that. It has to be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws us, who sanctifies us. But when we talk about this process of our sanctification, it is also not a magical process, right? It's not something that just magically happens. It's not something that we just pray and all of a sudden we get this feeling and, and now we're righteous or we're holy or our, everything about our perspective and our desires and our passions have necessarily changed. And so we have to engage in discipline when we pursue God. So as we seek to turn our hearts and our attention away from the desires that we've had towards this world, the desires that were very natural to our old person, we now want to focus on what does the Holy Spirit want to do within me? How does the Holy Spirit want to transform our heart? Because I'm reminded over and over again, especially as you saw that video, that we have access to more information than we ever have in the history of humanity. So much so that there is so much information out there, there's no way that you can actually access it all. Did you hear that uh, one comment that blew my mind was, it would take you, was it, 29 years not sleeping, watching videos constantly to just watch all the videos that have been uploaded to YouTube this past week. So just this past week, there's been so much uploaded, you would spend the next 29 years of your life watching it. Now that blows my mind. And it reminds me of this truth. We don't lack information, we lack transformation. And transformation comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we need information. We need to involve ourselves in Bible study. We need to read God's word. We need to have interactions with one another where we're challenging and sharpening each other. But ultimately, when it comes to our defeat of that old man and our process of sanctification, what we need is transformation. And transformation happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the reason this has to be the work of the Holy Spirit is because we are very aware of our depravity and our sinful desires, our sinful inclinations. Let's be honest. Even after we become Christians, if we're not careful, we care more about the things of the world than we do the things of God. 
How many times have we found ourselves, even those of us who are followers of Christ already, we're thinking of ourselves very dedicated to following after Christ. We attend church weekly. We go to a small group or a Bible study. We have maybe even disciplines that we've put into our life. And yet we find ourselves longing for the things of this world, longing to be approved here, longing to build a kingdom here, longing to basically establish our citizenship here. And it's through that process of the Holy Spirit rebuking us and correcting us to say, you know what, your thinking is all off because you're still thinking in the context of this world. And so we have to have this process. Why? Because it is our human nature to pursue and value pleasure and personal gain above holiness and godliness. That is who we are when left to ourselves. We will always default to whatever is easiest, whatever is most pleasurable, whatever benefits us the most. But our pursuit of holiness and godliness takes a different direction. So despite the fact that we cared more about this world and our own pleasures than we did about honoring God, the beauty of the gospel is this, that Christ, even though we were in that condition, denying God, pursuing this world, Christ still cared about our current spiritual condition and he cared about our future. So truly, this is a demonstration of what unconditional love really looks like. The unconditional love of Christ says, it's not about your current condition that makes you valuable in my sight. It's not that I find some worthiness in what you're producing from your life. It's the fact that you were created in the image of God. And so while we were far from him, Christ comes to us, redeems us, and then gives us the power of the spirit to come and dwell inside of us so that we can be better than what we were, so that we can grow and spiritually mature. And so it reminds me of the Westminster Catechism and it says this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Have you ever heard that before? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, these are two things that I want to put in front of you as when we begin to think about our disciplines, spiritual disciplines that we involve ourselves in, Bible reading, prayer, Bible study, all these different things that we involve ourselves in so that we may grow spiritually. Ultimately, they first have to find their purpose, their aim in this right here. The reason we were created, the reason we exist is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do we glorify God? I would say that one of the ways we, and probably the most prominent ways we glorify God is that we reflect his character. So as we have been redeemed and we're in this process of sanctification and more and more we are being remade into the image of God, when we reflect that image to the world around us, God receives glory from that. And you know what? Enjoying him forever is realizing this, that when we grow in our spiritual maturity, when we grow in godliness and things of holiness and things of righteousness, when we grow in those things, there is an enjoyment that we have in our relationship with God that we never receive if we're only focused on these things from a legalistic point of view. Legalism leads to frustration or it leads to pride. But truly, when we understand what Christ calls us to and our dedication and devotion of following after him, there is an enjoyment of God that is central to that experience. 
And so when we are restored to God through our faith in Jesus Christ, true godliness, not legalism, true godliness becomes our focus because the Holy Spirit is in the process of restoring us to be the kind of people that we were always intended to be. Many people believe that discipline in any area of life leads to success in that area. Have you ever heard that old adage, an ordered life is a happy life? You ever heard that? And, and you know, to some degree, it's probably true, right? An ordered life leads to a happy life. But what we have to be careful of is this. While many people think that having discipline is a good thing, many of them are engaging in those types of discipline with this mentality. Do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. Now, if that's your mentality and you are engaging in disciplines in your life and that is the perspective that you're coming from, then all of a sudden it leads you to become disciplined in areas that are actually unhealthy. See, not every skill is actually a virtue. Spiritual disciplines may not lead to immediate happiness, but the one thing they do is they form us into the people that God wants us to be. Do you see that? And there's a difference there, and I want to highlight that difference. There's a difference in happiness and joy. And sometimes we confuse those two things, and we just say, well, they're pretty much synonymous with one another, but they're actually polar opposites of one another. Happiness, the very root of that word is happenings. So happiness is based on what's happening around you. That's where the word actually comes from. So when things around me are going really well, I'm happy. When you say to someone, how are you feeling today? I'm pretty happy. Well, what they're saying is their relationship with their spouse or their girlfriend or their boyfriend or their friends in general is going really well. They have money in the bank account. All the bills have been paid up to date. Things are going in a good trajectory for their life. They are happy. Why? Because their happenings, the things that are happening around them are good. And then if people say, I'm not very happy today, then what they're saying is there's something in their life that isn't going in the right direction. There's a relationship that's falling apart. There's a need that's not being met. There's something that they're trying to overcome that they can't seem to overcome. And because of that, they are unhappy. So happiness is always based on what's happening around us. But joy is the word that scripture uses the most, right? And the one thing that we have to understand is that joy is different than happiness. Because joy says... I can have this persona, I can have this perspective, I can have this feeling despite my circumstances. You see, it's a difference of a thermometer and a thermostat. You see, a thermometer is like happiness. It's just registering the conditions around you. It's really hot, it's really cold. But a thermostat is where you come in and you set that on a certain degree. And no matter what's happening outside your house, if everything is functioning right, Inside your house, it is exactly what that thermostat has been set to. That's joy. Joy is based on Jesus. Happiness is based on happenings. And so when we talk about the joy that we should experience, we're talking about something that's based in our relationship with God. Everything in our life could be falling apart, yet somehow we're still at peace. 
You know, uh, the, the goals and dreams that we had for our life, maybe they seem insurmountable or unattainable at this point in our life, but somehow we still have peace in this. That's the joy that we're talking about. It's based on something other than what's just happening around us. And few people will deny that discipline is very important characteristic to have in life, whether it's in work or exercise or eating healthy, even other religions, they, they are incredibly disciplined. You think about Muslims who are disciplined in their practice of the five pillars. You think about Buddhists who are very disciplined in meditation and prayer. Discipline is just as important as we follow after Christ. See, Christians need to create good spiritual and biblical habits just as it is important to have healthy eating or exercising or sleeping habits. And so for those of you who may be visiting with us today, or maybe you're new to Mars Hill, we have just concluded this two-year study through the book of Romans. And we are actually going to the book of Ruth next. But what we have decided to do, is, as we often do, is to take a little bit of an interim time in between the study of the books that we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, and take that moment to focus on some things maybe we've learned from our previous study. And so what we want to do before we move on to the book of Ruth is we want to take this interim time to focus on some practical aspects of living out our faith that we learned so much about through the book of Romans. After, uh, over the next few weeks, we want to look at individual disciplines that we are called to through the scriptures. In other words, as we are following after Christ, what are the things that we need to be engaging in on a daily basis? How do we discipline ourselves to become more like him? What does that process actually look like? And so today what we want to do is kind of set an overview because if we jump right into that and say we start with prayer today, very easily we can become legalistic. We can begin to say, well, because I'm a Christian, I need to do these things. And then all of a sudden we create this spiritual to-do list. And so we begin to base our spirituality or our spiritual maturity, if you will, based on, am I doing these certain things? And if I've done these certain things, then I have something to be proud of. And if I haven't done these certain things, then I have something to be depressed about or to be discouraged about because I'm not growing spiritually. And that's not the case with spiritual disciplines. That's what I want to highlight today. I want to make sure we have the right perspective before we start talking about things such as prayer, Bible study, community, secrecy, giving, all those different types of things that are spiritual disciplines that the scripture calls us to, right? So I want to start with this. I have four things I want to point out this morning. Number one, the purpose of the spiritual disciplines is to know Christ and to become more like him. You with me? The whole purpose, the whole purpose of why we pray, the whole purpose of why we study our scriptures, the whole purpose and why we share our faith, the whole purpose and why we involve ourselves in a community of Christ, the church, is to know Christ and to become more like him. Listen to what it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to, what does that next, those next phrase say? supplement your faith. I want you to think about that. Tuck that in the back of your mind for a moment. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with, now watch how he develops this, virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection 
with love. For if these qualities are yours and, what does it say? Are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge of Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's almost like what he's saying is there's this process of growth that the Holy Spirit takes us through. And if we become unaware or we do not participate in this growth process, we become nearsighted. What does nearsighted mean? I only see the things close to me. Therefore, I'm only focused on my life. And I forget where Christ brought me from. I forget of what my life used to be. And all I look at is going, oh, look what I don't have. Oh, look what I really want to be, but I can't be. Oh, look what I want to be, but all these things get in the way. And there's other people holding me back. And I just can't do this. And we become so nearsighted that we're blind and ineffective. You see, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 5 there, Peter tells us to supplement our faith in order that we might be partakers of the divine nature of Christ. Now think about that for a moment. You can literally be a partaker of the divine nature of Christ. Now look at what he says here again in verse 5 through 7. I want you to pay attention. We are to diligently make every effort to supplement our faith. How does he say it? Look at it. Virtue is the first thing he starts with, right? Now, I want you to, virtue is how it starts, and then look how it develops. And virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with, what's the last word? Okay, so it starts with the virtue, and it ends with love, and there's this whole progress or progression that happens in the middle. Now, Peter gives us one of the most extensive lists that we find in the whole New Testament about Christian virtues. But notice that it's not a checklist that he's presenting here. It's actually a progression. He's not saying make sure that you are virtuous, that you're knowledgeable, that you're self-controlled, that you have steadfastness, that you are godly. He's not saying that. He's saying this one leads to that one. And then when you start involving yourself with that one, it leads to this one. And then this one will produce this in your life. And then this will produce that in your life. And then that will produce that in your life. But it starts with virtue and it ends with love. What is virtue? Here's the definition of virtue. Behavior showing high moral standard. That's all it is. So it's a behavior, something you're doing that shows that you have a standard that's a very high moral standard. Therefore, I don't involve myself in things of immorality. And so what it means is as we are called to this life of Christ, we're still letting go of who we used to be. We're still, still trying to attain who we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is leading us through that process. But one thing that becomes clear is it starts with this knowledge of what is the moral absolute. How do we know that? We know that from studying God's word. So studying God's word gives us the perspective of where our bar has been set, what our moral values are. But notice this, the progression there is not automatic. You know, I think a lot of Christians believe that their whole growth in Christ is something where attributes and virtues are suddenly infused into them because they have the Holy Spirit. And that's just not true. That's not how it happens. Notice that Peter says our faith must be, what's the word he uses? Supplemented. Our faith has to be supplemented. 
Now, how many of you work out in the gym? You have some kind of workout regimen, right? And you go there. Now, how many of you who work out in the gym also use supplements? Now, what is that? Now, here's the thing. I'm just going to tell you. You can go buy all the amino acids you want, and you can take them. If you don't go to the gym, they're worthless, okay? So supplements do nothing in and of themselves, right? Supplements cannot change anything about you. All they do is enhance what you are already trying to do. Are you with me so far? So when it talks about supplementing your faith, it means none of these things are effective for doing what your faith has already done. Your faith has saved you. Bible reading is not going to save you. Witnessing is not going to save you. Praying hours and hours a day is not going to make you any more of a godly person. Why? Because godliness and righteousness are attributed to us through Christ. So the process of spiritual maturation is not to become godly. Listen to me. This is a really important perspective. It's to attain the godliness that's already ours. Do you see the difference in those two? One of them is I'm trying to be something that I'm not. The other one is I'm trying to attain what's already mine. And that's the perspective that we have to understand that the New Testament puts forward for us. You see, we can't neglect that pursuit of holiness and godliness. We, we can't be lacking in those qualities. To lack them, as Peter says here, would mean that we are nearsighted and blind, forgetting that we've been cleansed from those former sins. And there we are trying to earn forgiveness again. When we truly understand the gospel and all that it entails... When we have truly accepted that gospel, realizing that everything necessary to save us has already been accomplished, then we can't help but be disciplined in the things that are going to make us more like Christ. Jonathan Edwards became a Christ follower in 1721. He was actually in his, his late teens. I'm not sure where, when he got that wig, if that was in his late teens or not, but I've thought about getting one of those too because it makes him look really smart, right? Um, he actually called his salvation experience, he called it a spiritual sunrise in his life. Now, what's interesting about Jonathan Edwards, he is declared, and this was actually in some encyclopedias that are secular in nature. They say that Jonathan Edwards was by far the greatest American scholar we've ever had, ever. That tells you the brilliance of this man, right? But yet he reflects back on his experience of coming to know Christ. And listen to how he actually recounts it. I'm, I'm reading from one of his own statements. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading those words in 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it. A sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I'd ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be as it were swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying as it were singing over these words of scripture to myself and went to pray to God that I might 
and joy him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to with a new sort of affection. Do you hear what he's saying there? Now listen to this. Did you notice the things that he talked about there? It was through means of scripture reading, through prayer, through singing, through worship, all biblical spiritual disciplines that Jonathan Edwards experienced what he called the enjoyment of God. If you were to dig deeper into Jonathan Edwards' writings and his personal journals, you would see these spiritual disciplines were actually a key to him in his growth and his understanding of his own spirituality. And so, however, we have to be careful not to misunderstand what spiritual disciplines actually are, which brings me to my second point, and that is this. A spiritual discipline is something you do, not something you are. Very important. Maybe the most important of the four points I'm going to give you today. Spiritual disciplines are something you do, not something you are. So our identity is not found in our production. It's actually found in Christ. And the whole point of spiritual disciplines is to be more firmly rooted ourselves into the power source of our Christian life, not to create our own power source. You see, there's a difference between spiritual disciplines and legalism, and we have to be very careful of this. See, there are many Christians who avoid any spiritual discipline because they view it as legalism. But this should never be the case. Legalism is self-centered, but discipline is always God-centered. Did you hear that? Legalism is always self-centered. It's always, I didn't do this or I have done this. I was able to do this. I memorized this much. I shared my faith this many times. I prayed for this many hours. It's always self-focused. But to be disciplined is God-centered. I'm understanding more about God. I'm understanding more about my depravity. I'm understanding more about this relationship and what's been afforded me in this gospel of Christ that I've accepted that's changed me. We're all familiar with the passage probably in Hebrews chapter 12. If you've been a Christian for very long or been in church your whole life, Hebrews chapter 12 is this very famous passage, verses 1, 2, and 3. Of course, it follows Hebrews chapter 11, a very famous chapter where it's called like the Faith Hall of Fame, where it keeps going through and talking about all these men and women of old who are just ordinary people, but they devoted themselves to this extraordinary God, and they saw amazing things happen in their life. And so that whole chapter goes through, and it accounts the, the, the lives of kings and prostitutes, tax collectors, and people who are judges, all different people, people who are very devout, and people who are just on the edge all the time, like Samson. And it says over and over again that because of their faith, God did these incredible things through them. And then it starts off in chapter 12. With that in mind, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's been set before us. Now think about what he says right there in that first part. Number one, we've already seen God's faithfulness in years past. He's never, ever not been faithful to someone. So the point is, why would he stop with you? I mean, if he's got 100%, if he's batting 1,000 right now, why would he mess that up with you? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. Did you see that? Lay aside every weight and sin. What does that mean? Here's what's important, and this is key to spiritual disciplines. 
is that when we devote ourselves to following after Christ, there are some things in our lives that we're going to have to give up that aren't necessarily sins. Because if it was just sins, then he would just say, let us lay aside those sins that cling so closely. But he doesn't. Look what he says. Every weight and sin. Now, what, what kind of things would that be? Well, you know there are things in life that aren't necessarily sins in and of themselves, but for us they become sins. It, it, it could be freedoms or liberties that we have in Christ. Some people can partake in them. Some people can't. It could be relationships. You know if a relationship is steering you towards Christ or steering you away from him. So everything in our life needs to be evaluated. Is this drawing me closer to Christ or is this pushing me further away? Is this directing me towards my identity in Christ or is it directing me towards my identity in this world? Over and over again, and we have to lay aside anything that's slowing us down in this race. Notice it's a race. A race has a beginning and an end. It has a destination. People prepare for races by beating their bodies into submission. They train, they train, they train. And when they show up at the race, they don't just meander through the course. They have a very determined route. They know where it starts. They know where it ends. And they've prepared themselves to get through everything that's going to be in that path, right? And so he says, run the race that's been set before you. And look what he says in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the protector and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, oh, there's that word joy again, the joy that was set before him. Now, what, did, what was set before him? The cross? I mean, excruciating pain? Being beaten beyond human recognition? Yet it is for the joy that was set before him. You see, that was all just the circumstances, but the direction was the salvation of humanity. So he didn't look at his circumstances and evaluate his life that way. He looked at the joy that had been set before him. The joy was not based on what was happening right then. The joy was based on what was to come. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We don't have time to go into the fullness of that, but just think about what it says in verse three and how it just kind of brings it all together. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not, what? Grow weary or faint-hearted. Guess what? Running the Christian life, running this life that God has called us to, it's not easy. It's difficult. It's gonna take endurance and perseverance. Where does that come from? From you? No, it comes from the Holy Spirit in you. So the disciplines that we engage in are not to increase our capacities. It's to recognize that we don't have capacity. That the only capacity we have is the spirit that dwells inside of us. And so it's more and more of learning how to yield every direction of our life, every ambition of our life, every passion of our life to the Holy Spirit within us. The legalistic heart says this. I will do this thing, prayer, Bible study, whatever it may be, to gain favor with God. But the disciplined heart says this, I will do this thing, whatever it is, prayer, Bible study, memorization, because I want to really know and understand this God who has demonstrated such a great love for me. Which brings me to my third point. The spiritual disciplines taught or modeled in the Bible are sufficient 
for the purpose of godliness. Now, the reason I want to point that out is because I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 4. Remember, Paul's writing to his understudy, Timothy, and this is what he says to him. He says, have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, look at what he says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now you notice there in the ESV, it translates verse seven as train yourself for godliness. But I actually think the NASB does a better job of, of defining this, of translating this. And it says it this way, discipline yourself for the very purpose of godliness. Now think about what that's saying there. Discipline yourself for the very purpose of godliness. Now, either idea is very simple. We have to work if we desire to be godly, okay? We don't have to work to be saved, but we have to work if we desire to be godly. Paul loves athletic illustrations. He uses them oftentimes in his letters. Running a race. One time he talks about being, an organi- being in an organized fight. And another time he talks about weightlifting. So here Paul is writing to Timothy who is in the city of Ephesus while he's writing this or reading this from Paul. Some commentators actually point to the possibility at this time in Ephesus, there was a training going on for the Olympics that were happening. And so the, all the runners in Ephesus were in the streets training and all this was going on. And so Paul was making this illusion that was right in front of them. And Paul has also written about the importance of taking care of our physical bodies in other letters that he's written. He says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, if this is true, Paul says, then you should eat well, that you should exercise well. But what Paul points us to here is the physical training that we engage in day to day should pale in comparison to the spiritual training that we're doing day in and day out. Why? Because the physical training has a small, limited benefit. Spiritual training has eternal benefit. One author says it this way, we are to train in prayer, in the word, in fasting, and in worship, and in sharing the gospel. Well, why is this contrast important for us to grasp? Because as important as it is to train our body, our body's only gonna last for a few years. But what we gain from godliness is going to last forever. In 1985, a guy by the name of Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. How many of you ever heard of it? Some of you have studied culture. You've probably had to read this book. Um, Today, we find ourselves in a very similar position of what Neil Postman was talking about back in the 80s. What he was talking about was as our culture has moved from a print media to a mostly digital media or a television type media in the early 80s, he was talking about the implications it was going to have on us as a society. Well, today we find ourselves even further along that path, engaging in the age of smartphones. I would almost guarantee that there are as many smartphones in this room as there are people. And so he says that these little small screens have become our new liturgy. And Postman's words are very eerily impactful and relevant to where we are today. He most famously repeats uh, Marshall McLuhan's um, uh, aphorism. He says this, we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. You ever heard that? We shape our tools and then our tools shape us. So think about that when it comes to the iPhone 
or to your smartphone, right? We have shaped our tools. We got it what we want. We love that technology. We put in there the apps that we want. And then what happens is what we have set in motion begins to shape us. Think about this for a moment. Postman makes some very insightful observations about how this plays out in our spiritual understanding of ourselves, specifically relating to the second of the Ten Commandments. He says this, and I quote, in my study of the Bible as a young man, I found imitations of the idea that forms of media favor particular kinds of content and are therefore capable of taking command of a culture. I refer specifically to the Decalogue, the second commandment of which prohibits Israelites from making concrete images of anything. So in other words, thou shalt not make any idols. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water beneath the earth. He goes on to say this. I wonder then, as so many others have, as to why the God of these people would have included instructions on how they were to symbolize or in this case, not symbolize their experience. It is a strange injunction to include as a part of an ethical system unless its author assumed a connection between the forms of human uh, communication and the quality of a culture. We may hazard a guess that a people who are being asked to embrace an abstract universal deity would be rendered unfit to do so by the habit of drawing pictures or making statues or depicting their ideas of that deity in any concrete iconographic forms. The God of the Jews was to exist in the word and through the word only. So the idea that the form of our media impacts its content and quality is actually found in the Bible itself. Now, Postman also had very significant observations about the effect that this mass media was going to have on church or specifically preaching. Listen to what he says. The first is that on television, religion, like everything else, is presented quite simply and without apology as entertainment. Everything that makes religion a historic, profound, and sacred human activity is stripped away. There's no ritual, no dogma, no tradition, no theology, no sense of spiritual transcendence. He's basically telling us this. Television does not promote reflection. It's a dangerous thing to assume the form of a message, the form in which the message is being relayed, has no impact on the content of that message. So think about it this way. If Christians invest all of their discipline into convenient sermon podcasts, into five-minute devotional apps, what does that say about the religion that you're actually practicing? Our spiritual disciplines have to go beyond what's convenient and what's comfortable, which brings me to my last point. The spiritual disciplines are a means to godliness, not an end. There are a means to godliness. They are not the end of themselves. So one of the things that we'll have to be careful of is becoming legalistic when it comes to our practice of these spiritual disciplines. This is so, so important because the difference is subtle, but it is profound. Legalistic Christians don't deny the importance of discipline in any person's life, right? But they often see the disciplines as a means in and of itself to the end in and of itself. What happens is prayer, the study of scripture, become evaluations of our spiritual status 
instead of a humble way of approaching our need for spiritual maturity. The legalistic Christian looks at the length of time they spend in these disciplines, the frequency that these disciplines are coming up, the appearance that the discipline has in the way people are viewing them. But here's the thing they miss. They hardly ever consider the fruit that the discipline is producing. That is the key to true spiritual discipline and legalism. Legalism produces haughtiness. True spiritual disciplines promote humility because we realize, wow, what a salvation has been granted to me. I want to explore this. I want to know this. I want to get as far away from my depravity as the Holy Spirit can empower me to run, to move, to grow. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run. What's the next word? I do not run. That's when you respond. I do not run aimlessly. What does that mean? It's like that race. I got a a finish line. I'm thinking about that finish line. I'm thinking about what it's going to take to get there. I'm thinking about how far it is. I'm thinking about what I've got to do. How do I have to pace myself? What do I need to put in my body to get to that finish line? I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as someone beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. At least after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Well, I've stood there many a times. And that's one of the greatest fears of being a pastor or a preacher is that oftentimes you tell people what they should do and you walk off of there and fail in those very things yourself. And Paul says, I don't want that to be my testimony. I don't want that to be my life. Again, Paul makes another comparison to this whole idea of athletic competition. A runner exercises self-control so that they may receive the prize. Again, people in Corinth were very used to seeing people participate. Some of the greatest uh, events, athletic events, happened in that day and time in that city. And so they were very familiar with these analogies and understanding what Paul was relating this to. And Paul uses this illustration to urge his fellow Christians to do whatever it takes to finish the race well. We have to be disciplined in the things that are going to enable us to finish the race, to receive the reward that is waiting for us. We have to be disciplined for the sake of godliness. You see, many people often struggle to be disciplined in reading their Bibles and praying on a daily basis. Have you been one of those people? You, You struggle with that. You see, when we do get around to doing those things, we rarely question our motivation. We just question the act. Here's what we often think. If I just read my Bible each day and just stay in that habit, I'm going to grow. If I just set my alarm and make sure I pray at least five minutes a day, I'm going to grow. But let me tell you something. If you don't take anything else out of here, take this. It's not that simple. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. I think this is very appropriate to putting this all together. He says, it's not enough to do the correct thing. It must be done in a right spirit and with a pure motive. A good action is not wholly good unless it's done for the glory of God. And because of the greatness and the goodness of his holy name. 
You see, the state of our heart and our motives behind the disciplines that we enact day in and day out are as crucial as we dedicate ourselves to learn and practice the spiritual disciplines. Maybe it's very hard for some of us to believe it is possible to read our Bibles, to pray, to fast, and to meditate, but for all selfish reasons. Unless we do it for the glory of God, and we do it hoping to find our joy in Him, it produces no fruit in our life. There was a young man. He grew up in poverty. Early on, this is half a century ago. This was a time when Jim Brown was one of the greatest football players of all times, right? He had all the rushing records. And this little boy growing up in poverty in the shadows of the great stadium in his city dreamed of being like Jim Brown. The problem was he was never going to be able to do it. This boy, because he grew up in impoverished conditions, suffered from rickets. He had to wear steel braces around his legs to keep him from bowing out so hard. But he had this desire, this longing, this, this, this goal in his life to be like his hero, Jim Brown. One day, because he didn't have enough money to go to a game, Jim Brown was playing in the stadium that he lived in the shadows of. So he went to that stadium and he said, you know what? I don't care what it takes. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. So he waited. He heard all of the announcing going on. Jim Brown to the 10. Jim Brown to the goal. Touchdown. He heard all of that. Never got to see anything. And long after the crowd had left, he waited, waited, waited right outside the locker room until he saw his hero walking out. And that's when he started yelling, Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown. I know you hold all the records, Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown, you're my hero. Can I have your autograph, Mr. Brown? Mr. Brown, looking at the little boy, walked over, had compassion on him, said, sure. And he says, as he was signing it and, and handed it to him, was walking off, the boy gets this moment of inspiration. He goes, Mr. Brown, one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to play professional football. Mr. Brown, I'm going to break all your records. Jim Brown, having compassion at the spunk in this little boy, he turns around and he says, well, son, if you're going to grow up and play professional football and break all my records, I need to know what your name is. He says, my name is Orenthal James Simpson, but my friends call me O.J. O.J. Simpson did go on to play professional football. He did go on to break all but three of Jim Brown's rushing records. The sad thing is whenever O.J. passes from this life, more than likely, he will not be remembered for those things of overcoming greatness, of great tragedy, overcoming great obstacles. He'll probably be remembered for how his life tragically took a turn. Because here's something that's very important. It's not how you start. It's not what you achieve. It's how you finish. The whole point of spiritual disciplines is so that you finish well. It's so that you don't get haughty, that you don't become prideful, that you understand in humility that the only power we have is the power of the Holy Spirit given to us through Christ. As we go through these different weeks of focusing on these different perspectives of spiritual disciplines, here's the thing we have to remember. Spiritual disciplines don't identify us. They're not our identity. They're just a means 
to grow in what is already our identity, which is our relationship with Christ.